what happens here is that ultimately the last enemy is death. And what we've seen in these signs over the seven, and this is the seventh, is that there's been a kind of progression because they've moved towards increasing confrontation uh, with the Jewish opposition, but also the stakes have been, become higher and higher. Each one has has been a little more important and a little more a little more serious because the first sign was kind of almost almost kind of like not as cons- you know not as not as, as important as like the turning of the water to the wine and, and it's in a private setting. Just a few people were there, and he, uh, Jesus turns the water into wine. And then there's the healing of the of the the the, the of, of, of the son of the king's official, which is Jesus' first interaction. With with royalty. Then there's the healing at the Jewish feast on the Sabbath, and it goes and it gets more and more serious, and then Jesus walks on the water, and that was kind of for the disciples. But last week we saw the healing of that man born blind, and the significance of that was that people that were born blind, that's a deep illness, and those, aren't, those kind of things weren't easily remedied, and that was a very dramatic illness, uh, healing, and it was done in the, in, the, in the view of everybody. And it was one of those things that, that really brought out the ire of the Pharisees who looked at Jesus and really began to, to challenge him. He was healed on the Sabbath, and they, uh, they, uh, they, they were opposed to him, and they voiced their opposition, and he challenges them with regard to their spiritual blindness. But here in the, the raising of Lazarus, what we're going to encounter is this, this clear threat that Jesus becomes to the Jewish leaders. Um, because they're concerned now that all will follow him, and they're concerned that the Romans will come and take away their place of, of uh, uh, as, as leaders among their people and take full control, whereas now this arrangement, you know, when Jesus is around, the arrangement is, is kind of like, um, you know, the, the, the Jewish leaders don't have, they're not in full control of their area, but they've, they've got a little say, and they're retaining their title, and they're retaining their little political system and then the Romans kind of run the whole show. They're afraid that Jesus is going to to get the attention of the Roman government and then the Romans are going to come in and say, you know, and put them all out and take complete and total control and then the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all these other C's, right, and Caiaphas and all the rest, they're going to lose their little place of power. And so the stakes get get higher and higher and ultimately in the last in the final analysis here Jesus deals with the biggest and the final enemy now let me ask you this what is your what what are you most afraid of are you most afraid of um of um of um somebody slapping you upside the head i mean i know you probably would not like that to happen but but i mean i think you could survive that right are you most afraid of, of uh, slipping and falling, you know? And yeah, but, but what's the biggest thing? I mean, what's the ultimate? What's the real deal? Death, right? Yeah. I mean, we fear sickness, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of sicknesses that you can get, get better from, right? There are people, that, a lot of you that have been sick and you got better. You, you had injuries. Some of you have broken limbs, arms and legs, and you, they put it in a cast and it got better, right? There's some of you have had all kinds of trials and challenges in your life, and, and you got better and you recovered and you, you're kind of moving on with your life. But the thing that everybody fears is death, right? That's the big one. And that's the one that seems the hardest to correct because you know what? It's amazing what medical science can do today, right? Thank God for the wisdom and the knowledge and the insight and for, for the progress that, that medical science has made. Thank God for things like, like vaccinations. I know that's controversial, but, you know, millions of kids didn't have to get polio and, and, and that kind of thing. And some of us in my age, we've got that funny little scar on your arm from when you got the vaccination when you, back, in the, back in the day, you know. Uh, thank God for, for antibiotics because 
infectious diseases when we need some new ones now, right? But thank God that, you know, that a strep throat doesn't have to kill you, right? But so, so you know, God has given human beings, you know, control over certain things. There are treatments for so many illnesses and so many things to, that can save your life. But, but they don't know how to bring somebody back from the dead. They, they have not, they, you, when you die and they take you to the morgue, uh, there's no, that's the final stop. Harrison Ross, when they wheel up that Cadillac station wagon with the blacked out back windows, they call it a hearse, right? That's the end of the line. And so Jesus, the final thing that he demonstrates mastery over here before he himself faces death is, is the power of death. And so, as one writer put it, the account of the raising of Lazarus is the climactic sign uh, in the Gospel of John. Each of the seven signs illustrates some particular aspect of Jesus' authority, but this one exemplifies his power over the last and most irresistible enemy of humanity, which is what? Death. And that's why it's given such a prominent place in the gospel. You'll notice that this Lazarus account takes up the entire 57 verses of chapter 11 because we have, the, we have basically four movements that I'll describe to you in a moment. But it goes from the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, all the way through verse 57. All of it has to do with Lazarus. And the four movements are like this. Number one, verses 1 through 16, there's the reporting of Lazarus' death and the disciples' initial response. Then the second movement, verses 17 through 37, is Jesus going to Mary and Martha and then uh, comforting them, but not yet having done anything to deal with what has happened because in the interim, uh, Lazarus has died. In the interim, Jesus finally goes there. And then the third movement is sits off by itself, and that's the moment in which Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead. And then finally, the fourth and final movement of this story in verses 45 through 57 uh, have to do with the Sanhedrin convening, that's the Jewish court convening in response to what has happened, and their resolve to eliminate Jesus. And this is the beginning of the end, if you will, because they have had it. This move now has gotten the attention of the people. It has demonstrated Jesus' power and authority over death, and they... Uh, they decide that we cannot allow this guy to mess up our things, so it's better, in the words of Caiaphas, that one die, then everybody suffer. And so now, at this point, at the end of this chapter, Jesus will no longer be able to move about freely publicly. We'll have to, he will have to go underground. He'll have to go covert because of the fact that they are out to get him. Now, so the story kind of goes like this, and I, it's, I'm not going to read to you 57 verses of, of, of text, okay? But let me give you a, let's just walk through it really kind of briefly and give you a, a synopsis of what happens in chapter 11. What happens in the beginning, the text says this, and it begins with these words, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. Lazarus is from Bethany, and, uh, and, and that's the village of his sister. And his, sister is, his sisters are Mary and Martha. Do you remember those names from some other places in, in the Gospels? And, uh, and then, of course, John even in, indicates, he says, this Mary, by the way, the, one, the, the sister of, 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 of Lazarus, was the one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so they send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick, indicating that Jesus has a, 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 a particular relationship, a friendship with this guy. And so Jesus, in verse 4, he makes the statement, he says, well, this, this sickness will not end in death. Now, Jesus is not... Uh, is not 
lying here or, and is not deluded or not mistaken. Jesus is saying something very specific. And what Jesus is saying is this. This sickness will not end in death. This sickness will result in death, but it will not terminate in death. Death will, will Jesus doesn't say this, but the inference is that death will take place, but that's not going to be the end of the story. And so then Jesus basically uh, does nothing, kind of hangs around for a while. And, and uh, then finally, uh, he says to the disciples, well, then now let's go back to the Judea because they're over in a place called Perea and they're kind of out of the, out of the flow because they're, they're, they're kind of staying out of controversy. Jesus is, is now being watched and Jesus has to be careful. And so they've kind of pulled aside. They're away a few miles. And so that Jesus says, let's go back. And then they said, but you know, the Jews tried to stone you there. Jesus, we, we, why are, is it, are you really sure we should go back? And he tells them, listen, it's while it's daytime, we need to work and uh, we need to do what we got to do. And so, uh, uh, he goes on to tell him, he says, listen, he says, Lazarus, our friend, he's fallen asleep, uh, but I, I'm going there to wake him up. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, in the Gospels over and over again, you see it where the disciples, do me a favor, Darius, and roll off um, Oxen 2 on this channel, and that will eliminate this ring that I have on the platform. A lot of times Jesus says things to the, uh, to the disciples, and they are kind of dull, and they don't get it. And so he says, uh, he sleeps, our friend sleeps, and that's an idiom in, the, in, that, in that time for what? Death. Death. And they say, well, cool, Lord, if he sleeps, then he'll get better. <laughs> yeah, they m- missing the point, right? So then he tells them plainly in verse 14, he says, Lazarus is dead, dudes. Come on, get with it. Lazarus is, he didn't checked out. But he says, but for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. So Jesus has something up his sleeve. And then Thomas in verse 16, who later, you, you recall, was the one that's called Doubting Thomas because after the resurrection, he says, I won't believe unless I can put my hands in the you know, side and all that stuff. But Thomas in this moment shows a little bit of, a, a, a little bit of bravery and a little bit of gallantry because he says, well, hey, he says, you know, uh, then let us go too so we can die with, with him. And, and it's believed that he's really speaking of Jesus. In other words, if we go back to Judea and Jesus gets killed, then let's just all go and we'll die with him. And so that's... That's the first movement. Then what happens is that Jesus goes and he comforts them. He's on the outside of Bethany. And uh, now several days have elapsed. And actually what's going to happen is that four days elapsed. And I know some of you are saying, man, and we're going to talk about this. But you're saying, wow, why why does Jesus like take four days? And some of you think about some things you had going on. You said, Jesus, I got problems here. And, And Jesus took some days to get to you. And you were concerned about that, right? Four days, and you know it's interesting because in in Jewish thought at the time, this wasn't official scripture, but the idea was that when somebody died, uh, the first three days that they were dead, their spirit kind of hovered around their body to see if it could get back in. And then on the fourth day, uh, the spirit's the body began to decompose, and so the spirit said, okay, I guess I'm really out of here, and takes off. And so that four days was kind of significant in that it, it's as though Jesus is allowing it to be plain that that Lazarus really is like real dead. This won't be like one of those, you know, TV miracles. This won't be one of those fake ones, right? This won't be one of those ones that, you know, I, I was working for a guy once and he told me that, that he had raised a guy from the dead in, in, the, in the Sunday night service, 
right? This, this preacher guy. And, and so, but everybody I talked to, I wasn't there. I said, why do I always miss all the good stuff? But everybody I talked to said, well, it looked like the guy went to sleep or something. We're not sure he was dead. Nobody pronounced him dead, but he, he looked like he blanked out. And then he went over there and laid hands on him and said something. And the guy woke up. And so he, he put that, you know, notch on his belt. Hey, I raised somebody from the dead. So come and, you know, come and, you know, film at 11. Come and check it out. Uh, you, you know how those go. Like, you know, may, he, may, he may have been dead. He may not have been. He may, may, have, may have passed out. May have, uh, may, you know, boring sermons like these may have fallen asleep, right? <laughs> come out. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> Four days. Four days. I mean, to where when Jesus goes out to the tomb, you remember what she says. She says, he says, roll the stone. Well, like Jesus, there's a certain aesthetic concern here. Uh, I don't know if anybody brought the air freshener, but uh, by now there, we had this play when I was coming up in our church and it was this, they, they had rewritten this and the line was, Lord, by now there's a very bad smell in this place. <laughs> or King James, he stinketh. <laughs> So, but, but four days, Jesus goes and he, on the outside of Bethany, first of all, Martha comes out and talks to him and then he engages her with regard to faith and basically tells, tells him, he says, listen, your brother's going to rise again. And it challenges her because she doesn't get it. She says, I know he'll rise in the resurrection. She says, no, listen, Jesus says this. And, and this is in verse 25. And these are major words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he asked Martha, he says, do you believe this? That's the faith question. God might be challenging some of us those words today. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and and the life? And so she says, I believe that you're the Messiah, the the son of God who's the coming of the world. And then she gets Mary, her sister Mary out, and she comes out and there's a similar exchange. And then, uh, and then basically they both say the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, okay, yeah, yeah, right, I understand all that. But there's a purpose to this, right? Jesus has a purpose. There's a reason why he delays. But then as it moves forward, those, some, of you, some of you are scripture memory giants. You have memorized a verse of scripture. And you say it every time you bless your dinner. You say, thank you for the food we're about to receive for the nourishment of our bodies. And then you bow your head and you say, Jesus wept. Because your mama said, you got to say a Bible verse over your food. He said, I got the shortest one. Jesus wept. What does that have to do with your food? Nothing. <laughs> but you are a memory champ. You memorize. So if you want to memorize scripture, start with that one, right? Verse 35 of, of John 11. You can say, I, 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 I've memorized a verse of scripture. Jesus wept. And then go from that until you've memorized whole chapters and books of the Bible. But, but it demonstrates the fact that You'll see, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, but he demonstrates his humanity and his entering into the sufferings. And on one hand, he's God, and he knows what he's doing, and he's calculating, and he knows that Lazarus is going to die, that he has died. He knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. On the other hand, when he sees his sisters grieving, and when he beholds the, the scene of death in the environment, in his humanity, he cries with them for real, real tears, not fake tears. Jesus wept. And then uh, they go, and ultimately what happens is that Jesus tells them to roll the stone away. And he calls Lazarus out of that tomb, and Lazarus comes forth. 
and then from that, all of the glory that, that, that surrounds that ensues. But then after that, the chapter concludes with the plot to kill Jesus. And the Sanhedrin getting together and saying, we, cannot, we can't allow this kind of stuff to be going on. We can't allow people to be getting raised from the dead. We can't allow the blind to be, be, have their sight restored. We can't allow all this kind of good stuff to happen because it's going to get the attention of the authorities and get us in big trouble because we can't do none of this stuff. Is this something how sometimes religious people who have no power in their lives and have no faith and no trust and basically want to maintain the religious status quo have a certain angst and a certain anger towards those who actually do have a vibrant and real relationship with God and see things happen in their lives? And so that, at the end of the, of, of the entire, of, of the whole story, what happens is that Verse 57, but the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And then it goes on from there. It goes on from there. Now, I'm going to give you four things. And this should take no more than about two hours. Uh, give, give that woman five dollars. And I want to just use four words for the sake of alliteration. Uh, and, the, and they all start with P. And the first one is pace. Let's talk, about the, let's talk about Jesus' pace. Because one of the striking things about this story is, is that Jesus doesn't go right away. And maybe you might look at that and say, Jesus, that's kind of cold. That's kind of uncaring and insensitive. Uh, he gets the message from the two sisters, this cry for help, this, this emergency, this come quickly appeal. And he stays where he is for two more days. He doesn't even mention it to the disciples initially. He doesn't make preparation to go. He doesn't, he doesn't send messages back to say, hey, we're on our way, Mary and Martha. Hold on, I'm coming, right? He just stays there. And Mary and Martha in Bethany, they watch their beloved brother, Lazarus, die. And we have to ask the question, what was Jesus doing? And I think from the context we, we can understand, one of the things Jesus probably was doing is that Jesus was praying. Jesus was wrestling with the issue of his Father's will. The disciples were right in verse 8. The Judeans had been wanting to stone him. And maybe he wouldn't think of going back just yet. And Bethany was, and is a small town just two miles or so from Jerusalem on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And once you're in Bethany, you're in easy reach of Jerusalem. Who knows what would happen this time? Jesus operates at his own pace. He delays his response. But there's a few things we need to know about those apparent delays. First of all, his delays do not contradict his love. He loves us as fully and as truly when he remains in one place, when we're in the other, with our cry for help, when he's ministering to somebody else's needs or tending to something else as when he journeys to Bethany, if you will, to minister to our need. His, the delay does not contradict his love. And I know in some of our lives, things have not happened as quickly and as expediently and in as timely of a fashion as we would have liked. But I want to encourage you this morning that, that in no way communicates to you or to me that Jesus loves you any less than you thought he did. Jesus always has a plan and always knows what he's up to. The second point about God's delays are this, is this, that they are not final. 
In other words, in the words of, of, of a song a friend of mine wrote years ago, not now doesn't mean never. He will come, but he will come in his own time, in his own way. We learned that about Jesus, didn't we? Jesus tends to do it his way. He tends to do it the way that he deems. You know, he said, Jesus, come to my house and heal my son. He said, well, you know what? I don't have to come to your house. I have another way I can do this. I don't need to follow your methodology. I'll get the job done, but I'll do it in my own way. I'll do it in my own time. And the way I do it will be better because I always know what's best. No doubt what we're looking for from, from Christ will tend to be later than we would like. But from God's perspective, and, and I, at the risk of sounding trite and cliche, God's time is always the right time. You know what they used to say, he may not come when you want him to, but he's, hello. And that, those are hard words to stomach when you're in the throes of a trial or a, a situation, but it's true. Whenever he comes, it's always the right time. God created time, and so he is never late for his appointments. Now, there's two additional things that this story teaches us about God's delays. And we're talking about pace here. Jesus' pace is different than yours and mine because Jesus knows what he's doing. The first thing about God's delays is that they are inevitable. There's no guarantee in Scripture, no promise of God that says God will come through for us always in the way and in the time that we think. He'll he'll always be on time, but his time is not our time because we are finite creatures. We are fallible and flawed human beings. We're unaware of the circumstances that around the events taking place, that surround the events taking place in our lives. And one of the things we have to come to grips with is this. Life is much more complex and much more much 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 more multifaceted than we often realize and sometimes trying to deal with the problem of evil we talk about the issue of fact that when you're dealing with situations and circumstances in your life and in the world you're dealing with the the will of people who have free will and choices that they can make whether you like that choice or not god allows them those choices and sometimes those choices affect you and the other issue is the absolute complexity of life if you look at a room like this we're not a ton of people but in this room there are so many different perspectives and so many different realities and so many different stories and so many different histories and so many different issues and we are we are a complex assembly of people and and so it's jesus manages those complexities and we don't see all of that we just see what we want and our need and our pain in the moment it's like sometimes when you try when you become your own doctor because you have the internet dr google your doctor went to medical school and learned how to diagnose illness and there's a, there's a, there's a, I, I perused a book. I, I didn't read it, but I perused it. I speak, go into Barnes and Noble. I speed read books so I can pick up a little smattering of knowledge. But, but there was, this book was, was written by a doctor, and he was explaining that there, there, there's a logic that they use in the diagnostic process. It's not just, you know, I mean, otherwise we could just all be doctors, just pull it up on the Internet or just buy a medical book back in the old days, right? When, remember, when you, remember books? But your doctor has been trained, and then he's got years of experience in dealing with, like, real people to where, you know, you have a list of symptoms, but you, he has to look at the, the multifaceted complexity of the human organism. And, 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 and then he has to do, you know, you're, they don't want to tell you, but they do a little trial and error. Yeah. Uh, then, and my doctor, I've, been, I've had the same doctor for, like, 25 years. So I had him when I was, like, when I was born, right? He, <laughs> but it's like, uh, it's like, 
there were times I knew he was, I knew he was guessing. I knew he said, well, I think this is so-and-so. Let's try this. I'm like, okay, here I am, Mr. Charles H. Guinea Pig Williams. But, but, there, but there's a complexity to it that we don't understand because they have studied the whole thing. But just think about God and your life and think about reality in the world. And God knows the ins and outs. There are things going on about your situation that you have no idea about. Things that you can't see. Things that you don't understand. So those delays are un- inevitable because only God is omniscient and only God can manage the hidden complexities of life. And since we're not fully renewed, this is the, the final thing about this. Right? Because, you know, we're, we've, been, we've been born again. We have the Holy Spirit residing on the inside of us as, as, as Christians. But we still have a f- fallible, fallen, sinful nature. We still don't see things clearly. We still have our biases and our blindness and all that stuff. And what happens is our imperfect desires make us want immediate answers when immediate answers aren't necessarily even necessary or when they're not in God's plan. And they, they render us, in the words of one author, as unprepared uh, for the patient ripening, if you will, of God's plans. In other words, God works in our lives at a pace that will bring you to a certain level of maturity and ripen and develop your faith. But know this as we, complain, as we, as we conclude this, this point. God is not playing games with you. Please know that. It's not a game. God, Jesus is not playing games with Mary and Martha or Lazarus. It's, it's, there's no funny business going on. Jesus is approaching this with all seriousness, all, earnest, all earnestness. Jesus knows what he's doing. But just we have to be aware of the fact that his timing is not our timing. Now, let's go a little further. Then notice that the one thing that both the sisters say as, as Jesus approaches Bethany is that Jesus if only you had been here. Now, aren't those some famous last words? If and only. If only. Right? That, that, that's, man, we spend most of our lives trying to get back to the future, if you will, or, or back to the past, or rewrite the past, or wish we had a different outcome. Wish we, don't you wish you really did have a time machine? Do you wish you really did have a DeLorean you could get into and, and go back and fix? Man, that's some stuff I said and some stuff I did. I, w- I wish I could get into in, what was it, Sherman and Peabody, the Wayback Machine? I, I wish I had one of those. Cause don't you wish that you could go back and fix some things? Don't you wish that some things in your life that took place that went down hadn't gone down? You wish that you could have avoided You just wouldn't have gone to work that day if you knew, knew you were going to get fired. Are they going to fire you from home? Just, you know, sent you a letter. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and we, we're always trying to rewrite and second guess the past. If only, if only, if only, if only this hadn't happened. And I know, believe me, beloved, there are things in your life, there are things that many of you have gone through that should not have happened to you. They shouldn't have. Because everything, because you, you know, you understand my, my worldview Based upon my understanding of Scripture, I do not believe, see, everything that happens, you know, we don't believe in Christian fatalism. Well, if it happened, it must be God's will. No, there are a lot of things in the world that happen that are not God's will. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, you pray, Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You pray and ask for that because that's not always the case. There are things that people did to you. It was not the will of God. It was not within God's plan. Jesus' heart was breaking with some of the pain that you encountered, some of the abuse that you took, some of the ugliness in your life. That's not the point, right? But we, well, we still find ourselves wanting to go back, and we wish we could fix it. We wish the past could be rewritten. And we wish often, don't we, that God would have consulted us on some of this stuff. If you had asked me, 
But isn't it interesting that he doesn't? Yeah, that's kind of the thing with Job, right? If you ever read the book of Job and you understand it properly, it's, the whole thing is, is, is it's, it, and I, I referenced this last week, it flies in the face of the people that say, hey, if you do the right thing, then everything's going to always go well with you. So if you did something wrong, you must have screwed up. The message of Job is no. Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And so basically that's Job and all his buddies, you know, all these long discourses towards God and they're lecturing him, you know, you know, Job. And then they're telling Job, they're giving him their, their pop theology. And then he's talking to God and giving God his perspective on his sufferings. And in the end, he sits everybody down and says, where were you when I framed the heavens? Where were you when I, when I formed the seas? Where were you when I did this and that? Do I need to ask your opinion? Do I need to consult you on anything? Because, uh, by the way, that's why they call me God. <laughs> and that's why they call you Job. And some people can't, they think it's Job. <laughs> but Jesus in verse 14 and 15, he alludes to this greater purpose. He says, Lazarus is not dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that you may believe it. And it's in a very real sense, there's some stuff in your life that I know you wish may not have happened, but Jesus says, I'm, I'm glad it happened because I know that the glory that I'm going to bring out in your life will, be, will, will supersede any pain that you experience. It'll be worth it, and, and what you paid, will, you'll get back so much more than you would have gained otherwise. I'm glad, I'm glad that, that your life turned out that way, not because I'm a sadist or because I, I want to put you through pain, but I, it, it will allow me an opportunity to de- demonstrate my love and to show you the depth of my concern and my care and to provide for you and to strengthen your faith so that you can, you can go from glory to glory in your life and you can avoid some of those pitfalls in the future. I know it doesn't always make sense. But he says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Jesus considers this an opportunity for extreme demonstration of his power that will, in essence, certify the Father's accreditation, if you will, of him as the Son of God and confirm the faith of the sisters and the faith of disciples. And, and, And Jesus is sure of the outcome. He knows that in the end, positive relief. Jesus knows that joy will be the final result. Because God has a plan. He always does. In your trial, in your, in your situation, this, this is not just the stuff. I know there's stuff that in the Bible, and it's good it's there because it's made really good gospel songs. And church people could get in churches and sing, Weeping may endure for a night. And, and everybody say, ha, oh, handkerchiefs waving in the wind. It's like, that's good. That's some good rhetoric, good prose there. Make some good, good songs. Like, weeping. It's, I mean, it's, and, you know, and, you know, guys could get on the mic and say, Weeping may endure for a night. And, and what do you say? Yeah, now you you say yeah, yeah, you know, but joy, joy, you know, and you you can you can you can you can riff on that for like thirty minutes, really, you know, joy, and you start breaking out J J O J O, you know, but but it's not just rhetoric, and it's not just stuff to to to, to kind of put a salve on your feelings when you're at church, but it's a reality of of having a personal relationship with God, your Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. The the, the reality is that that. Joy will always come as a result of the challenges and the trials and the the tribulations that God allows you to go through. He will always bring you out if you allow him and if you'll trust him to a place of joy. And that's more than rhetoric. It's real. It's real. It's real. 
And then, so that, that's pace. You know, we understand Jesus' pace. And then, give me one, passion. And I, I, for the sake of alliteration, that's a good word. Jesus displays a certain level of passion and a certain level of feeling, if you will, in this. He demonstrates the fullness of his identification with our humanity. And his response, we see, it, 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 it illustrates his divine nature in the end, right? Because he calls Lazarus forth from the grave. But it demonstrates his human nature as well in a very profound way that should be very encouraging to us. His passion towards the people that he loves, his passion toward the work of God, his feelings, his emotions. Because up to this point, he had, up to a certain point, he's, he's calm, right? In the beginning of the story, he's like, eh, you know, don't worry, our friend Lazarus is not dead, he's just asleep. You know, euphemistically, so to speak, guys, don't you? Just chill, you know. And then he goes there and he said, well, I'm glad I wasn't there. And, you know, he's, he seems to be a little bit aloof, a little bit detached. He, sees, he seems absolutely calm. And he says to Martha, he says, you know, oh, don't worry, your brother will rise, you know, again. She says, I know he'll, rise. he'll be raised in the, in the final resurrection. She said, no, I'm the resurrection. I'm going to raise him up now. And that's his, but he, he's, he's pretty calm and collected. But then Mary shows up a little later and she comes out, and, and Mary is a little bit more torn down than, than Martha was. And, and she's crushed with sorrow and accompanied. She's accompanied by, you got to get the scene because, you know, back in those days, you had all, everybody would gather to mourn for that four days, right? The other thing about the four days, usually after three days, you, you expect Pope's supposed to go home. That, that, you know, that was a cultural thing as well. But you had the regular mourners, and then they had the hired mourners. L.A. would be good for that because there's a lot of actors here, a lot of unemployed actors. And, you know, you guys, if you're any unemployed actors, you could, if you were, this was a nice, you know, uh, first century Jewish environment, you could, be, you could hire yourself out during the week when, you know, when there's no shoots or anything, no gigs. You could hire yourself out to be a professional mourner. I've seen them in some of the churches I've been in. They don't, uh, some of them, they're good. And that's, so you had this crowd, and you had the real folk, the family. They're broken and torn up. And then you had the professional mourners. And they're like, they're getting paid, and they're going, oh. <laughs> so all this wailing, because, you know, so we got to make a lot of noise, and it's got to be sad. It's like some of the funerals I've been to, you know, to where, <laughs> y'all know about these funerals, because sometimes the worst one, <laughs> the, sometimes the one in the family, the one that's acted up the most and treated the, the deceased the worst is the one that wants to jump in the casket and th- bring them back, <laughs> knocking things over. <laughs> so that's the environment. And so, but it's, but Jesus in his humanity doesn't allow himself to, himself to remain detached from that. Oh, it would have been easy. Well, you know, I have to keep, let me keep it together. I am, after all, the son of God. Let me keep a certain uh, decorum about myself. But he enters in, and there are these three words. Stay with me. I'm, we're going a little long here, but, but listen. These three terms, number one, it says he was deeply moved and troubled in verse 33. And then in verse 35, it says Jesus wept, which one translator puts it like this. Jesus broke down in tears. Now, the first, you know, deeply moved, troubled, wept. The first of these terms, in the, in the Greek language, it means this literally, to snort like a horse. It literally means to snort like a horse. Now, that's the word, the original word from the Greek language that's, that's, that's rendered deeply moved means to snort like a horse. And it implies, now listen, stay with me, because check this out. It implies not just grief, but it implies anger. It's probably not that Jesus 
was voicing displeasure with the sisters that he was trying to comfort. But maybe, maybe there was a mixture. Because we always take it as, as grief. Jesus is, is sad and he weeps because his friend Lazarus is dead and he enters into the moment. His friend is dead and even though he knows he's going to raise him in his humanity, he feels it when somebody dies even though they're going to come back to life again. Because that's how human he is. Fully God and fully human. But someone suggests that maybe this expresses maybe the fact that this, this Greek word that means snort like a horse that connotes anger. Maybe it suggests that, that Jesus is, is angry and expressing resentment against the ravages of death that have entered the human experience because of sin. You know how it is. It's like I'm a parent, right? Y'all know I'm a parent. And, and, and there are times I'm mad, I'm angry, not at my children, during the times when I was raising my kids, sometimes I'm angry at the forces that are, uh, that are arraying themselves against my children. Sometimes I, be- I become angry at the environment that is trying to, to, to damage or harm my children. Sometimes as a leader, you, you, I'm not angry at the people, but I'm, I, I'm disturbed and agitated because of the forces of evil that, that, that the enemy is, is waging against God's people that we're fighting against. And so you can imagine that, that moment, Jesus Christ, who's the author of life, he's looking at this, this cruel thing called death. Because death is not, was not a part of God's original plan. In this reality we live in, it's natural, but in God's original plan, it's not natural. The second word is that, that he was troubled. Eteroxin in the Greek, it expresses agitation, confusion, or disorganization. It implies probably in this context agitation rather than confusion. But notice this interesting mix of human grief mixed with this tinge of anger, frustration, and agitation. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. Jesus was not apathetic or unnerved by the prevailing mood of sorrow. Lazarus had been a beloved friend, and Jesus shared in the common feeling of, of grief over his death. His human feelings are normally revealed by the crisis of the moment. In fact, again, the Williams translation, there actually, there actually is a Charles Williams translation of the New Testament. Believe it or not, it's not mine, but there's a guy from England. But it, it's, a great, it's actually a great translation, and he put it like this. Jesus burst into tears, a kind of spontaneous grief, if you will. That's why when somebody's hurting in your life, don't be ashamed to break down and cry, don't be ashamed to give it up, let it go, to enter into the feeling of the moment, to enter into somebody else's pain. The Bible says we're to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And we tell people, sometimes people have lost loved ones and they're sitting at a funeral service and they're trying to be stoic and people say, you got to hold it together. And I would say, why? Now when you hurt, just let it go. Just, just cry. Because Jesus wept. But, 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 what caused this anger? He's not annoyed because I got to raise Lazarus and I was trying not to come back here to Bethany. He put me within two miles of Jerusalem where my, my neck is on the line. Is, is he angry because he knows some of these mourners are being paid? They're on union scale. And if it goes past, oh, when it goes in overtime, they'll start getting double scale. And so there's, you know, there's a bunch of hypocrisy. No. And is it because of the unbelief? Because Mary is so uncontrolled in her grief initially? No, but someone said, put it like this. 
the spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought pointedly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. So Jesus sees in Mary's grief the misery of all humanity that we face at the hands of the enemy. So Jesus, when he sees, I would suggest this to you, and I tell people this all the time. First of all, there, right now, if I say trial or challenge, for some of you, something pops into your mind because maybe in the last year, two, or five, something happened to you that has, that has altered the course of your life and has caused you grief and pain. And when I say that, and, and so we, we, when we look at something like that, or you're going through something right now that's causing you pain, and you're going through a time when there's uncertainty, and there's, there, 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 there is, you have this concern about where your life is headed and what is going to be the outcome of your situation. Some of you were, have been abused at the hands of other people in various ways. Some of you have been grossly mistreated. Some of you have been dealt a very unfair hand in life because life is not fair, and we know that. But what we get from this is that when you wept, Jesus was right there alongside you weeping. When you were crying that night, when you were crying your, your eyes out on your pillow because of that situation at work or because of that loved one that betrayed you or because of that situation that happened to you that, that brought your world crashing in upon you in that moment when you were crying, it's not like Jesus was saying, well, you know, I'm the Lord and if you'll just trust me, you just need to suck it up and be a man or be a woman and come on and get with it here and have some faith because that's one side of Jesus. Yes, some he'll tell in the Gospels, he'll say, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? But when you're hurting, Jesus doesn't come at you like that. Sometimes I know that Christian people have made you feel that when you're down, Jesus has basically given you an examination. What did you do wrong? What, what do you need to fix? You need to get your life together. Did, and this is God's judgment on you. But when you wept and when you cried and when you were hurting and when you were going through, Jesus Christ was standing there by your side and he was weeping right alongside with you, with, right alongside you. And not only that, but Jesus was angry. Jesus was ticked. Why? Because Jesus hates the forces of evil that come to destroy his children. Jesus hates the power of death. Jesus hates the work of the enemy. He hates all of these things, and that's why he gave his life on the cross to destroy and abolish the works of the devil. Okay, young, you, okay that's, that, that's two of you got that. Okay. So death is the object of his wrath. I'm going to go a few more minutes. I've been running out of time lately. I'm going to have to have, we're going to have to schedule these services to go to about three, then we'll be all right. There, there is, there is, there is. So what happens is, because you remember there's this parable uh, uh, and the, the, with, the, with the farmer and the one who sold the tares in the field. And in Matthew 13, and Jesus, the, the farmer goes and he surveys the damage. He says, an enemy did this. And that's what Jesus sees in this situation. An enemy has done this. And this is an enemy that he came to slay. And so the showdown has begun. It is on. Jesus weeps. Jesus is perturbed by the presence of evil and by the presence of death. And Jesus resolves to do something. But there's more. Wait, there's more. If one is nineteen ninety nine, two or $20, they can't be worth anything, right? Anyway, TV marketing. To, to any Greek reading this, and this gospel was written to Greeks, this would be an incredible picture. Because this whole gospel is based on the theme that we see the mind of God. And to the Greek 
mind at this time, and from a Greek philosophical perspective, the primary characteristic of God was what we call apatheia, which is not the same as the English word apathy. Because I, you know, apathy is kind of it's okay, you know it's okay, but it, this apatheia goes a little deeper. It means this. The total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever. Sometimes apathy is we choose to be apathetic. Sometimes we're slightly apathetic. But apatheia is, from a Greek perspective, is the total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever. And so, so we say, well, how? Because sometimes Greek philosophy has, has colored our theology in ways that really aren't biblical. And so the question is, how did the Greeks come to attribute this characteristic to God, and how does it sometimes play into our thinking of God? And it goes like this. If we can feel sorrow or joy, gladness or grief, it means that someone else can have an effect on us, right? Someone else can bring joy or bring sorrow to us. Now, if a person has an effect on us, it means that for the moment that person has exhibited power over us. And so, in a sense, in that moment, it means that the person is greater than we are. Now, no one can have any power over God. That would be impossible, the thinking goes. And so if that be the case, it must mean that God is essentially incapable of feeling any emotion whatsoever because no one must be able to bring joy or sorrow to God. So that, that, that posits the idea of God as the unmoved mover, which to some degree has infected a Christian idea of immutability that makes God seem that kind of detached and distant from us. And I would submit to you that Jesus is trying to teach us something about God the Father here that we need to understand. The, the, the Greeks believed in this lonely, isolated, passionless, and compassionless God. But we see this different picture that, God, that Jesus gives us of God. Jesus shows us a God whose very heart is, is filled with anguish concerning the anguish of his people. A God who in the most literal way is afflicted in our afflictions. That's the God that we serve not a God that is apathetic or unconcerned, but he's a God, as a matter of fact, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, has entered into our suffering and entered into our experience and enters into our feeling. The Bible says he was touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, our infirmities. So he brings to us a picture of the God who cares. Okay, let's see if we can go a little further and wrap. Then finally we see the display of power. And, and we can run quickly through this, but Finally, Martha, in verse 27, says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world. And this is the last step of faith, and Jesus is dealing with her. And so Jesus takes the next step, and he goes out, and he tells him, he says, basically, roll the stone away. And you know the response, well, Lord, that's probably not a good idea. This is day four, and the body started to decompose, and so it's going to be kind of, kind of pungent in there. It's going to be kind of ripe, right? <laughs> and, uh, and Jesus, and, and, and he goes and tells him to do it. And, and, he, and now notice that Jesus didn't ask God to raise Lazarus. He thanked him for having already answered. This is the power of God working through Jesus. So great was Jesus' faith in the Father that he assumed this miracle that was necessary to his mission to be good as done. And so only Lazarus, only raising Lazarus would, would complete the expectations Jesus had aroused in his disciples and in Mary and Martha. And so he declared in his prayer that the transaction was already complete. And basically he said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. That's all he did. He called him out. And Lazarus, and you have to get the picture because 
he was wrapped in kind of grave clothes. From what I understand by this day, he's not yet been fully embalmed, but he's fully wrapped up. And so he's resuscitated. He, he comes alive, and he's, you know, he comes out, right? He's all wrapped up, right? And uh, the words in the King James were, loose him and let him go, or basically untie him and unwrap him and set him free. It's like, can you get the picture? What, a, what an amazing moment. What an amazing display of God's power. Something that there were other, there were two other instances of, of the dead being raised in the Gospels. But this one is the most dramatic. And this one, had, this one that he had been dead the longest and the most dramatic in its impact and in its import. And so he comes out. And, he's, and, and, and you know what? This is what you'll hear preachers and you'll hear commentators say. You notice that he didn't, that, that Jesus didn't just say, come forth. Why didn't he just say, come out? Yeah, because it is, it, is, it, is, it is posited, it is suspected that if Jesus had just said, come forth. Because you see, in John 5, 28, he said that all who are in their graves would hear his voice, right? If he had just said, come forth, it, it, is, it is not possible that all of the dead that were buried would have come forth and burst out. It would have been like the, the revenge of the zombies or something, right? They're all coming out. They say, wait, go back. <laughs> But Jesus shows his power and his authority. It's as though he's saying, Lazarus, this way out. Come on out. And notice the folks. He says, come forth. And he brings them out. And now as we close, let's just consider that's the power. And, and oh, one, two, three, four, the purpose, the purpose. It is only as a sign that the raising of Lazarus stands supreme among Jesus' miracles. Jesus did a lot of wonderful stuff, but, but John puts it as a, as the last of these seven signs next week we get to talk about the resurrection of Jesus which really is a lot of people would consider to be the eighth sign but these seven signs demonstrate Jesus power and uh, the gospel John's gospel is interested in Jesus miracles as signs of his glory expressions of his relationship to the father and this miracle narrates uh, this fitting conclusion and capstone to all of the things that Jesus did prior to the, the the text that follows in John which is basically the last few days and Jesus final teaching and 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 prior to leading up to his death but it shows this as we wrap this up this morning it shows Jesus power over death it highlights the futility of the Jews' efforts to silence him by killing him because what we'll discover as we move forward this week, now we've got to go through Good Friday, so we've got to go down into the tomb and we've got to get quiet and, and, and on, on, on Holy Saturday we need, to, we need to contemplate the fact that he is entombed and, and in there and dead in the grave. And then on, but on Sunday morning you get to get up real early and celebrate the fact that he has risen from the grave but, because here's what's going to happen. Death will not hold Jesus because Jesus himself has demonstrated power over life and death. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am that I am life both physical, spiritual and eternal. And so the son has revealed the father's glory and in that revealing he has himself received the glory as the one sent by the father.